I'm going to go somewhere else before that, but that's where we're going to end up. And we're going to talk about something this morning that isn't very often talked about. Because one of the things when you uh, preach a book of the Bible is you can't avoid the, the bits that people don't talk about. You come across them. So this morning, we're going to talk about Satan. We're going to talk about demons. How about that? Actually, the Bible says very little about demons. It says very little about Satan, actually. Uh, what it does say about him isn't very complimentary, to be fair. <laughs> and the, the truth is, the reason the Bible says so very little about him is he's not that important to us. Because the Bible says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the enemy's devices. And yet, if there's anything we're ignorant of, it's the enemy's devices. Most of us think, well, you know, that's all that, that's, that strange stuff. That happens in Africa and gypsy camps in Bulgaria and nowhere else. Well, it happens all over the place. It's just because you're ignorant of what's going on that you don't see it. And he, the, the enemy is active in all aspects of a person's life if he can get access to them. And how does he get access to them? Through ignorance. There is no other access point apart from ignorance. And, you know, some of us are so ignorant of how Satan works that we develop and write all sorts of ideas about how Satan works. And there's whole books of, of like 70 different things that he does that are not based on the Bible. They're based on people's fears. They're based on speculation. And quite honestly, they're based on religions that aren't Christian. And yet we import them. And we, we develop all these things, all these ideas about the enemy works. And the end result is Christians either totally ignore him or live in fear of him all the time. And Jesus wants you to be in neither position. So hopefully this morning we'll clarify it because most of what I'm going to cover this morning is actually most of what the Bible says about the enemy. Because there's not a lot. Here's the first thing it says. It says your adversary goes around prowling like a lion looking for whom he can devour. That doesn't sound too good, does it? The adversary goes around prowling like a lion for looking who he can devour. And he looks and he looks and he goes, Roar! Now, if that frightened you, or you're going like, well, what does he, what's he doing? Like, if it like shocked you, made you jump, you've missed a word in that sentence. And the word in that sentence is like a lion. He's not a lion. He's not, he's not a, a, a devouring lion. If he looks anything like a lion, he's a lion with no teeth and no claws and no strength. And he's not going to pad you to death with his paws. He goes around like a lion because he's trying to convince you that, that he's got, he, he can do it. He's trying to convince you that he can devour you. Now, the truth is, he can if you're ignorant of his devices. If you're ignorant of how he works. If you're ignorant of the fact that he isn't a lion. That he's, he's toothless. He's clawless. If you're ignorant of that, he can devour you. And the problem is that in our society, he's devouring much of our society. Because unbelievers are open to him and believers are used by him. Does that surprise you? Believers are used by him. Well, let me give you an, an example of that. 
who, who's the, let's think of, of who we, we could talk about. A believer who is used by Satan. The Apostle Peter. He's a good believer, isn't he? Yeah, he's kind of a cool guy. Rock on which the church is built and all that sort of stuff. Gets out of boat, walks on the water. I haven't done that. He's cooler than me. You know, he's a good, good believer, isn't he? So, Jesus comes along, he asks the disciples a question, he says, who do, who do people say I am? And they say, oh, Elijah and Moses and John the Baptist. And then Jesus turns around and says, who do you say I am? And it's at that point that Peter comes on to his own and all the other disciples duck. Because they don't want to answer the question. But Peter, he's got a bit of a big mouth. What does he come out with? Uh, you're Jesus, you're the Christ. And he goes, and he gets this amazing revelation from God. And, the first, and Jesus says to him this, flesh and blood has not shown you that, but my father is in heaven. What's happening? Peter is receiving revelation. His thoughts are influenced by what he's, ha what he's receiving from heaven. It's a revelation that he gets. And Jesus says, on that revelation, I can build a church. I'm, I can do it. Now, unfortunately, so that, that's, that's us Christians acting with our spirit. That's a good picture of it. Now, unfortunately, the next thing, the very next thing that happens is Jesus starts to tell them that he's going to be crucified. He's going to be uh, put on trial, crucified, and he's going to die. And, and on the third day, he's going to raise again. But all he's going to go through all this. And Peter says, no, you're not. I'm going to stop anybody. I've got my sword out, Jesus. I'm going for them. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. What's happened? Peter is listening to thoughts that aren't from God. He's listening to thoughts from his flesh and he's listening to thoughts from the enemy. Same person, same place, to the same continuous conversation. Peter is influenced by God and influenced by the enemy. That's how the enemy works through believers. He gets us to talk from our flesh and gets us to talk from our unbelief. So he's working through believers and unbelievers and he's making a mess of our world, because that's his job. Jesus put it like this. Um, um, let me no. Let me say this first. If you um, if you run your life, if you run your decision making, if you pour your energies into things based on your own understanding, instead of leaning on the guidance of God and the, 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 the leading of the Holy Spirit. What, what's happening is that you begin to operate from the beliefs and the thought patterns of the world. And when we operate from the beliefs and the thought patterns of the world, that's when the enemy uses us to bring about negative things. He can destroy our health. He can destroy our finances. He, he can... Um, he can do all sorts of things to us. He can just grind us down. He can get us to get disillusioned with God, get disillusioned with our faith because we're operating from the thought patterns of the world instead of the leading of the Spirit. And so that's how he operates. That's when, when, what he's saying when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of my devices. His job is to try and get us to think like the thought patterns he's sown into the world. Are you getting this? This is really simple. Now... 
Here's something I just want to like caveat right at the start of, right at the start of this is that the stuff that goes on in your head, and I don't want to know about it, but you know about it, and it's different for every single person in this room, where you're tempted to do some stuff that you know is wrong, and it just like it goes on in your head. Um, a prevalent one for many of us would be that we just happen to like things with a lot of sugar. And for some of us, it's made us just a little bit bigger than our ideal dress size or ideal shirt size. And we know it's not good for us, but we can't break the temptation. And it comes into our head every time we walk into Aldi or Tesco and Unfortunately, if you walk into Asda, you know, it comes into your head wherever. Now, here's what I want to tell you. At that point, there's nothing wrong with you. Temptation is not sin. Acting on temptation and following through is sin. Now, it's really important. You're going to listen carefully here. Write that down. Temptation is not sin. Acting on temptation will lead you to sin. Now, here's what the enemy does if we're not ignorant of if we're ignorant of his devices, he gets you to believe that what's going on in your head makes you a bad person. Which is kind of funny when he put it in your head in the first place. And he gets you to think that you're useless, you can never get free of this, you can't, you can't walk beyond this, that you're just, you're just a weak person who gives in to this. Your answer to this is, I might have these thoughts, but they're not sin. How do I know they're not sin? Well, here's the thing. If temptation was sin, absolutely none of us are saved. Okay, oh, that's a big statement, Mark. Well, how do you mean if temptation is sin, none of us are saved? Well, it's like this. In order to be saved, you need a save, needed a saviour who had never sinned. And yet Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are. So he's not unaware of what we're going through. So if temptation was sin, we're not saved. But because temptation isn't sin, we are saved. Because Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, and yet through the power of the Spirit in him, he was able to walk free and not act on those temptations because the temptations came from his flesh and they came from the enemy and not from God. And it's really important because the enemy uses what goes on your head to make you feel like you're a failure and you can't do anything. And if he can do that, he can keep the kingdom of heaven quiet and he can stop us taking ground. Are you getting this? This is really uh, fundamental stuff. And, and if, you, if you get this, this is going to absolutely liberate you in setting you free to be effective and save lives, heal bodies, cast out demons, and, and just transform people you come into contact with with the power of the kingdom. Why? Because you'll be able to walk free of being driven around by your flesh and by the stuff the enemy sticks in your head. Okay, so that's why it's important. And it's kind of cool in some ways. 
let me just flesh that out a little bit for you because, how can I put it? You're, you're in a battle. Open warfare is upon you. Whether you like it or not, you are in a battle for the rest of your life. It's not a war that ever comes to an end. And you've got a couple of choices, one of which is to be overrun. The other which is to try and ignore the battle, in which case you just get swept along and overrun. Or you can fight. And we need to be those who fight because the enemy is at work in our society, in our politics, in our law, in, our, in the way we think, in our social media, in our news, and right through everybody's lives, the enemy is at work. And the Bible talks about this, and this is just the bit where I'm not in Colossians. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 2. You don't need to look at it. I'll read it. You were, it's on the screen. You were made alive who were dead in your sins. That's just saying, you're now a different person. You were dead in your sins, but you're not that person anymore. You are now alive because you have the Spirit of God in you. You were made alive who were dead in your sins in which you walked, say walked. When's that? What, what tense is that? Past tense. This is you before you became a Christian. Before you became a believer, you walked according to these things. You walked and you were dead in your sins and you walked according to the course of the world. The world pushed you around. The ideas of the world pushed you around and you were getting swept around and overrun by whatever was going on. You walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan. So what it's saying is there's stuff going on in this world and you can see it every time you switch your TV on, your computer screen, look at an advert on the side of the bus or have a conversation. You can see the enemy at work to pervert the goodness of God's creation and the goodness of this, this, this society that we live in. And that's what it's saying. He's at work... And you would get swept along with it at the level of the stuff that he's inspired by getting to people's thoughts. So you were getting swept along with this. According to the Prince of Power there, the spirit who now works in who? Sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? Those who aren't saved. So the enemy is at work in them in order to create things in society and, and in culture that are not according to God. And what, what, what Paul is saying in his letter to the Ephesians is, don't get swept along with it, recognise it for what it is, do not be ignorant of the devices of the devil. Instead, go to war with what you now have, because you're alive. You're alive. You do not need to be swept along like this. You get to walk by the Spirit, and you will see some pretty amazing things start to change in you, through you, and by you. Amen. This is like, like we should like have our achieving boots on, because that, that's good news, isn't it? You will see some pretty amazing things because of God in you and he'll do it in you, through you and by you. At which point we cheer. Yay. Yeah, that's more like it. You see, I've got to keep you awake. 
I'll keep you awake at least till you get some more caffeine. How's that? I can't promise when you're going to get some more caffeine, but when we get there. Okay. Now, in saying all that, that doesn't generally mean that somebody is demon-possessed. Okay? Some, some people go like, oh, there's demons everywhere. They're doing this, they're doing that, they're doing that. That's not what it's saying. It might be in some instances. But, you know, so there's some Christians who are just like, everything's a demon. Honestly. And they get all bothered about it and all wound up about it and all upset about it. And they've got 56 ministry techniques to try and find them. And guys, it's just not that complicated. If there's a demon, you'll find out quick enough. You don't need to prod them to find them. But because we have all this stuff, we think like, everything's demon possessed and we're trying to cast people, demons out of people that haven't got demons and it's just, it's just crazy stuff. And it doesn't help anybody. It just puts them off the reality of the kingdom. And the reality of the kingdom is if there is a demon, we've got authority over it anyway, so don't sweat. It's going. You know, people sometimes go, well, you know, we can't, we can't go there because, or we can't have a meeting in that building because there's, a, there's this spiritual atmosphere in the place that's just wrong thinking for a believer just totally wrong thinking i'm not saying there's not a spiritual atmosphere in that place what i'm saying is this and, and, and you've got villages you know there's I, I won't mention but there's people who live in our in, in a particular village in cambridgeshire that's just dominated by spiritualism okay but should we be frightened no should we be bothered about it? No. Why? Because when we walk in, if we know we're carrying the Holy Spirit, they're more worried about you than they are about than they're bothering you. That's the approach. If if somebody says, Oh, there's a strange spirit in here, I go, Good, it's going. Because it doesn't like me. It's gonna do one or two things. It's gonna get really upset, in which case we'll kick it out, or it's just gonna go anywhere because it doesn't like the Holy Spirit in me. Because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And we have to start believing some of the stuff that Jesus says, not some of the stuff that Christians have, and believers and theologians have written that's not in the Bible. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. So therefore, where I go, there's, where there's evil spirits, they're more bothered about me than I am about them. And if I find them in somebody, that's really upsetting for them because they're not going to be in that person very long. Because they're going. We're in a battle, but we're supposed to be on the winning side, not the worried side. Oh, I like that. We're supposed to be on the winning side, not the worried side. Write that down, everybody. That can go on Facebook tomorrow. Okay, you can all put it on Facebook. We can have a mass Facebook quote. <laughs> We're meant to be on the winning side, not the worried side. Okay, do, have you got that? Okay. Here's, here's the point. Colossians 1.13. You're back in Colossians. We're ha on happy territory now. We're back in Colossians. Colossians 1.13 says this, and we, I preached on this in an early session. Not going to do it again. You have been delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. Amen. You have been delivered from the power of darkness. What does that mean? 
Darkness has no power over you. Darkness has no power over you. You have been delivered from it, past tense. When you became a believer, the power of darkness in your life was broken. And you now live in a different kingdom called the kingdom of the sun. Some translations put it better. I love the, the, the translations put it this, that you have been transferred to the kingdom of the son of his love. Not darkness, love. Love is more powerful than darkness. Okay, you still with me? Now we have to get clear on our dividing lines. This is point number five for my sermon. Get clear on your dividing lines. I'll tell you what the other... Sorry, just in case you like, you're somebody who likes numbered points, I'll tell you what they are so far. The adversary goes around prowling like a lion, but he's not looking. He's not a lion. Secondly, thoughts can be influenced by God or the devil. Thirdly, temptation is not sin. Fourthly, you're in a battle... And negative things are going to come against you and they're motivated by the effect of spiritual influence. Fifthly, you've got to get clear on your dividing line. Here's the dividing line. Jesus puts a perfect dividing line. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. This is John 10. So what does the thief come to do? Let's try that. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. It doesn't matter which order it in. If you got it in the wrong order, there's no pressure. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy, or whichever variation you want of that. So what does he do? What does he come for? To steal, kill, and destroy. What did Jesus come for? Give you life and life in all its abundance. So that's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, like, I'm... I'm you know, even if you're not, you know, you haven't got all your full marbles and you're not the brightest kid on the block. It's really simple. If it's good, it's God. If it's bad, it's the enemy. If it's stealing in your life, if it's killing in your life, if it's destroying in your life, messing up your relationships, all the rest of it, it's motivated at its core by the influence of the enemy in, in people's lives and in our society and in this world. If it's good, it's from God. Why is that really important? Well, that means that you can probably bin more than half your book collection of Christian books <laughs> that are full of theology that tells you that God puts bad things in your life to teach you things. Well, read the beginning of James and it says God doesn't tempt anybody and God doesn't test anybody. That's not what he does. You know, you've got a clear statement there. So don't like go around thinking he does. And... The, the, the thing is that people, you know, I, I find it so upsetting when people say, oh, well, God's made you sick in order to teach you a lesson. God didn't make you sick. The world made you sick because it's a sick world. You might have made yourself sick. Somebody else might have made you sick by infecting you. But God didn't do it because God's good. It's a really clear dividing line. And the only thing that's going to make you better is knowing that God's good. Because that's the only thing that saved you in the first place. And it's the only thing that will heal you. It's the only thing that will deliver you. It's the only thing that will set you free. Knowing that God's good. He's not bad. He, he doesn't bring bad stuff into your life for a good purpose. Why doesn't he do that? Because 
Sometimes we do that, don't we? You know, like, well, you know, the end justifies the means. Well, God doesn't need to do that because he's not, he's not tiny like us. He can do anything and he doesn't have to bother with the end justifies the means. He doesn't have to compromise himself to get what he wants because he's bigger than that. He's huge. He's amazing. He can do anything he likes at any moment he likes, whenever he likes. So he doesn't have to change what he's said. He doesn't have to break any promises. He doesn't have to give you bad stuff to teach you lessons. Why? Because he can give you good stuff to teach you lessons. The same lesson because he's clever. He's cleverer than us. Some of us might not believe that, particularly as we're in Cambridge, that God is cleverer than us. A lot of clever people want to make God like them, so they try and reinvent God and make him not as clever as they are. Unfortunately, he's cleverer than them. And he's sitting there and he's chuckling away in heaven and going, look at all those arguments. They go around in circles. Aren't they stupid? And they go, we're really clever. No, you're going around in circles. You're stupid. And God's laughing at us. He's laughing at all this pride that we have in our intellectual know-it-all culture. And he says it's coming down. Because at the end, every knee will bow to me. And then you'll know you weren't so clever as you thought you were. Amen. That's, that's clapping. Follow D, yeah. Right, lost it, please. So how did we, how do we get here? How did we get this problem with the enemy in the first place? Well, that's something the Bible does talk about. It says in, in Genesis that all authority and all dominion on earth was given by God to Adam, to man. And he gave us a mission to be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, do amazing things, spread all his goodness right across the earth. And he gave that to Adam. Now, the thing about God is when he says something, he never takes it back. Why? Because he cannot lie. And so in doing that, he gave authority in the earth to Adam. You follow me in this, this is really fundamental, really important. So at that point, Adam is carrying from God, he's been given by God, authority on earth. Not, not like the authority God has, but the authority to like, rule over the animals and, and look after creation and all the rest of it and determine his own destiny. The enemy, because Adam was ignorant of the enemy's advice, devices and so was Eve comes along and said God's fibbing to you because if you eat of that tree if you eat of that thing he's told you not to eat then you're going to be like him Adam a not been a being ignorant of Satan's advices and b not realizing he's not as clever as God forgets that God has already told him that he was made in his likeness and his image. He already is like God. And so he falls for it. And in falling for it, he goes, I'll take what you say as my authority, Satan, and not God's. And in taking what Satan says as his authority, Adam relinquishes his authority on earth to the one he's listening to. Now, go forward thousands of years, the other side of the cross, the victory of Christ on the cross, and what does Jesus say? He says, the world has changed from this point. Yeah. 
Here's my question. What side of the cross do you live on? This side, the good side. And Jesus is saying something happened as a result of what I did on the cross, the victory that I won on the cross, and now all authority on heaven and on earth and under the earth is in me. I've got it back. What's he saying? He's saying the man, Jesus, has the authority back from the enemy. Where's that authority now? You're leaping forward slightly. It's somewhere where nobody can touch it. It's in Jesus. Where's Jesus? Heaven. Where's the enemy? Not in heaven. Can never get to it again. Remember, he's fallen. He's not there. He can never get to it, never touch it. That's never going to change. And Jesus says, now, I've got all the authority. Therefore, I'm delegating it to you to do what Adam should have done in the first place and go and take my kingdom and take back this planet. And we're hiding in our buildings. We're hiding in our buildings when we've got the power to change the world. And that's really sad. Because we don't realise we've got the authority. Why don't we realise we've got authority? Because we were ignorant of Satan's devices and he's convinced you that you are just little old me and you can't make a difference. And you see all this stuff in the newspapers and on televisions and on the internet and you go, oh, the world's terrible. I can't do anything. And you don't realise that you are 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold fruit bearers. That's who you are. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You're going like, okay, Mark's taking the leap. Going to have to run that by me slowly. So this is where we get to Colossians chapter 2. <laughs> and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to preach you through, the, teach you through these verses. I'm going to start Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. This is where we finished off last week. Beware lest anyone take you captive through philosophy and vain deceit. Who's going to do that? The influence of the enemy in the world. The enemy's philosophies. The ideas he spread in the world. That are different from God's, the ways of the world. In the traditions of men and the elementary principles in the world and not after Christ. So what we, we need to do is make sure that we keep remembering that we're running by the principles of Christ and not according to the principles of the world. Because the principles of the world are influenced by the enemy who is working in people who are ignorant of his devices. On to verse 9. Be, uh, sorry, for in him, who's him? Jesus, you're doing well, following it so far. For in Christ, in him, because it's got a capital H, hasn't it? Yeah, in him, it's talking about Jesus. What's, what does it say about Jesus? In him lives all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, here's, a, here's the first question on this, because I'm going to get you to a little bit of work as we go through this. What tense is that in? In him lives all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Present tense. So it's true whenever second of existence you're living in, it's true about Jesus. 
It's who he is. It's always the reality about Jesus right now. In him is all the fullness of the Godhead in that body. He's God. That's what it's saying. Not what them guys with the little magazines who stand outside King's College say. What he says about himself is, I'm the fullness of the Godhead in this body. And that's what Paul's saying about it. In him is all the fullness of the Godhead body. Now, that means he's God and in him is all the fullness of God. We're talking fullness. Everything about God is in Jesus. The fullness of God is in him. Are you, are you with me? Are you still agreeing with me? Good, because I'm going to take a bigger leap. Well, I'm not. Paul is. Because when you read the next sentence, it might dawn on you he's saying something huge. And you are made full or made complete in him. You are made full and complete in him who is the head of all authority and power. Where's all the fullness and authority of God? Correct. You've made the leap ahead of where I was. It's all in Jesus. And where are you? You're in Jesus. So where's all the fullness and authority of the kingdom? In you. And that's just amazing, isn't it? Like, you should be falling off your chairs with excitement at this. I don't recommend it, but if you want to injure yourselves, have a go. We can practice healing ministry. In him is all the fullness, and you are in him. And what does that fullness entitle you to? All authority. He is the head of every principality and power. So what are you if you're in him? You are a, carry authority over every principality and power. So what are you afraid of? What are we messing around with? Just tell them to go. They've got to go. Just don't get in all the weird stuff. Well, you know, I looked at a Harry Potter book on the shelf, so I've demonised. No, you're not. You're just stupid. <laughs> Even, like, guys, they're more worried about you than you have of them. But they're trying to convince you you should be worried about them. So what he does is this. He basically goes and he uses an illustration and it's the illustration of baptism. By the way, we're going to have a, a baptism service towards the end of January, beginning of February. So if you would like to put your name down to be baptised, I've already got a few names, then uh, email the office, let me know, or the office will be emailing out as well. So if you want baptising, you're not being baptised, uh, then we're doing that at the end of January, beginning of February. I haven't got exact date yet. But he uses this illustration from baptism. And what he says is this, and I'll read it to you. In him you were also circumcised with circumcision made with our hands by the putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also, also you were raised up with him through the faith of the power of God who has raised him from the dead. 
and been dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of the flesh, he has resurrected you together with him, having forgiven all your sins. Same question again. What tense is all that in? No. Past tense. He's done it. He has forgiven all your sins. He has buried you circumcised you, cut out your old heart, given you a new heart, the circumcision of the heart, not the circumcision of the flesh, which is rather gory, and I'm glad that I have not had to have done. But, you know, the circumcision of the heart, the real circumcision that changes you from the inside, he's done that, and he's raised you again to new life, forgiving you of your sins. When was that done? 2,000 years ago, when it did it apply to you? When you accept Jesus as your saviour. When you say, I'm no longer going to live for me, I'm going to live for you. And he says, okay, I'm going to take you at your world, you're dead. And I'm going to give you a new life. You're no longer your own because I have purchased you with my blood. You were dead, you have a new life. Now let's go live it, let's go do this adventure. That's what baptism's about. I'm going to say something really controversial here. We separate baptism and salvation. I'll tell you something you won't see in the Bible. You won't see a sinner's prayer to become a Christian. What you see is baptism as open acknowledgement that somebody's made a decision for Christ. And we've made it that this little thing that you need to have like a six-week, ten-week course before you can be baptised. And you need to be in church at least three years before we can educate you properly so you can get baptised. No, they baptise straight away because that was a public declaration when somebody says, I want Jesus as my saviour. And they recognise that in that moment, it changed people. There was power in baptism then because people were coming to Christ then. The two were at the same time, generally. That's why the apostles get all wound up when it's not at the same time. And they go, we've got to do something about that. Let's fix it. But generally, it was meant to be at the same time. You made the declaration. I want to know Christ. Good, I'm going to baptise you. Because in baptising you, we're making this public declaration. We, we have a sinner's prayer. Here's a surprise for you all. The sinner's prayer did not exist before the 1830s. It came into ministry, in ministry practices. And that's when they started doing altar calls. Why? Because it didn't need it. Because people got baptised. That's how they declared to the world the power of God has brought me through to new life and it's now at work in me. And, and that's what he's saying. You, you, you've done that. And the result of that is you are forgiven of your sins. Amen. I'm forgiven of my sins. Past tense. I'm forgiven of my sins. That's amazing. All that poo, it's gone. Everything I did wrong, it's gone. I'm forgiven of my sins. And the enemy comes along and goes, but you're still bad. You still mess up. You still do that wrong. You're still a failure at that. Don't you know what a miserable sinner you are? You're not even worthy to gather up the crumbs under God's table. Uh, in him lives all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and I'm made complete and perfect and I'm in him 
and I'm not worthy to gather up the crumbs under a table? No. It's just wrong. In him, I am forgiven of my sins. Through faith in his grace, I am forgiven of my sins. But the enemy goes, but you still sin. You still mess up. You weak, miserable failure, you. And you go, I'm a weak, miserable failure and I'm no good at this Christianity thing. I might as well give up. And even if I don't give up, I'm not saying anything. Getting myself in trouble doing that. People might not like me. We're living just so way below our potential. Just way, way below our potential. We're nearly there. Here's the exciting bit. Because this is the end of the enemy's devices in your life. He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against you and contrary to you. And he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. So the enemy, with his devices, comes along and says, you're useless, you're a failure, you're terrible. Look what sin you did this morning. I bet, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you don't have to put your hand up, but I bet there's at least two or three people who had a row on the way to the church or it fell out with their kids, because that happened when we would, had kids, and it still occasionally happens, because that's life. It doesn't make us a failure, it doesn't make us not in Christ, it doesn't make us useless. It means we've got something to get over and apologise for and get on with. But don't you let the enemy come round playing games with your mind as a result of it. Why? Because the handwriting that condemns you, the law is blotted out. For a believer, it is no more. Where is it? It's nailed to the cross. Why is it nailed to the cross? Because Jesus fulfilled every term of it and then paid the price and signed on the bottom line with his blood. The enemy's device is to come and use it and play games in your head to say you're a good-for-nothing, do-nothing failure. His game is to reinforce your shame, your guilt, your failures in your past. And Jesus says, I have forgiven your sins and we have a future together. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. This is awesome news. Awesome stuff. Now, I know I can get, you know, just occasionally I, I break out of my shyness and I get upset about things. Here's something I'm upset about because that tells me that the enemy has no rights in my life. You cannot read that any other way. The handwriting of all the law and all the ordinances that was against me has been blotted out by being nailed to the cross. So, this is what upsets me. Sometimes I get really upset with Christians because in an attempt to be like the New Age, they go, oh, there's legal rights of demons. And if you do this and you watch that and you do this and you look at the Harry Potter on the shelf, you're going to be demon-possessed. So don't. Get rid of everything out of your life. Don't talk to anybody who's not a believer. They may infect you. Look at that spirit they're carrying. Oh, you could catch that. No. Why? Because he has nothing 
on you. There are no legal rights this side of the cross of a demon. Why? Because there is no law for a believer. So don't let him play the game. And it's just wrong. I've seen people just get so tied up. They will go through ministry session after ministry session after ministry session. They'll go, oh, I feel so free. And three weeks later, they'd be worse than they were in the first place. Why? Because they looked at somebody and they thought, oh, they're quite pretty. And they go, oh, I'm demonized again. <laughs> I've been unfaithful. No, temptation's not sin. And the, the enemy has no legal rights. He can't just demonize you because you saw a pretty girl in a shop or a handsome guy. It doesn't work like that. And yet we, we write whole books on it. It's just, and yet it's plain. The handwriting of the ordinances that was against us and contrary to us, he took out the way, nailing them to the cross. Here's how he did it. It says in the last verse, verse 50, he made a public spectacle of the enemy. He made a public spectacle of the enemy. Having disarmed him, Having disarmed the authorities and powers, he made a show of them openly. Mostly, I've got a new version here. Most of yours will say made a public spectacle or made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, I'm going to explain that in a minute, but I want to show you where we've got to first. So I need a volunteer. I need somebody who always saw themselves when they watched the cowboy films or the wolf film, they saw themselves as the evil bad guy. I need somebody who can look really evil this morning. <laughs> right, so we have here uh, Evil Joyce. Can you just hold that a minute? I'm just going to get some little clothes. Oh, you've got a clothes. Right, I'm going to get really gory now. Because anybody know what a public spectacle is? Yeah, because you do, because I've told you already years ago. If you've done rock solid, you know what a public spectacle is. Here's what this is saying. What they used to do is, do you remember like Goliath and people like that? They used to shout threats. before. They used to stand on hillsides as enemies and shout threats down and say, look at how many big army we've got, massive army. Well, in the Roman Empire, on the edges of the Roman Empire, that's what the, the barbarians and the, the, the sort of unsophisticated non-Roman people used to do. So they used to attack at the edges of the Roman Empire. And when they attacked, before they attacked, they'd shout, look how big we are, look at all our chariots, look at all our horses, look at all our swords, look at all our spears, look at the greatness of our king, the great bum-bum killer, <laughs> whatever his name is. The... the, the, the Bob Bob the Visigoth. Yeah, look at Bob Bob the Visigoth. Isn't he terrifying? I'm coming to kill you. And they do that for days before they charged. And the, the point of it was that the if they did it enough, the people just ran and they didn't need to fight. So what did the Romans do? When they defended their borders and they took further territory, they would go and attack the people. They wouldn't wait for them to come. They'd go and attack and their purpose when they attacked was to take Bob Bob, the swordsman killer, evil guy, captive. And so they go and they take him captive. You don't kill the other king. You take him captive. Why? Because he's better used to you alive than dead. 
Why? Because you're going to make a public spectacle of him. What are you going to do? You're going to take him to the towns where he was threatening and saying, I'm Bob Bob, the evil guy, and I'm coming to get you. And you take him, and what do you do? You strip him naked. You cut off his fingers so he can never hold a sword again. You cut off his toes so he can never march against you. You tie him to the back of a chariot and you parade him through the town so everybody laughs at the one they were afraid of and they know he's never coming again to harm them. And that's what Jesus did to Satan. So if you can avoid the banana skins, we can take this city and this land. Amen. Because it's time we started infecting our culture with the virus we carry called the gospel. And it's a virus that spreads. And it's a virus that is armed and dangerous and has a gun called the gospel that kills in a single shot. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all your goodness. We praise you for your greatness. We thank you for the, the complete victory that you won over the enemy. And Lord, right now, I just pray that, that we would not forget what your word says and become prey to the devices of the enemy. And that we would avoid the banana skins he puts down for us. To know that whenever he comes around and accuses we look at Jesus and we say, I'm sorry, but let's get on with the business. Let's take this city, Jesus. I shouldn't have done that, but we're going to take some ground. And praise you, Lord. And thank you. And thank you for your greatness, your glory, your power. I thank you that you are above all principalities, all powers, all authorities, all dominions. And you have called us alongside you to take the virus of the gospel, the power of the kingdom, out to win ground. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Let's give him praise. Let's give him thanks. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.